More than 37 million Americans are affected by migraine. The condition impacts one in five women and 10% of school-aged children. It can begin at any age, usually peaks during your 30s. Migraines usually are serious, debilitating symptoms such as nausea, difficulty concentrating, thinking clearly, sensitivity to light sounds and odors. There are resources available to help manage migraine symptoms. Please talk with your physician about treatment options and talk to your employer about reasonable workplace accommodations. For more, visit womeningovernment.org, womeningovernment.org. Attention true crime lovers, The Real Channel Show Autopsy is coming to Podcast One with all new episodes. Join Dr. Michael Hunter and those involved in the cases as they examine the autopsy reports from some of the most famous celebrity deaths of our time including Patrick Swayze, Chris Farley, Natalie Wood. Download new episodes of Autopsy every week on Apple Podcasts or at Podcast One. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, we do appreciate you supporting the people who support the podcast, keeping wind in the sales of the Corolla Pirate Ship. And, uh, yeah, don't forget to sign up at drdrew.tv. I do a live show once a week now. And we will send out a blast when we are preparing to do that show. And you can, that's a live, live show where you can call and ask all the questions you want. And that's all I do is sit there and answer questions. I have this weird uh, mode I'm in now where I want to do more of that kind of thing. And so that's what we'll do. And also don't forget uh, your mom's house, the After Dark podcast. You can check it out, Dr. Drew After Dark. It's all at drdrew.com. And uh, I just want to get some calls today. I have calls on you guys, from you guys as well as uh, some guests in the studio. We're going we're gonna to discuss some things. So let us start with uh, David. What's going on, David? Hi, Dr. Peter. How you doing? Hey, man. Hey, um, I'm calling in. A big fan of the YMH podcast, by the way. Ah, um, but um, my parents are actually uh, going through divorce, mm. and I uh, I'm 26, uh, but I have four younger siblings that are all still living in the house. Mm. And my mother, I do believe, is going through a schizophrenic episode. Why during well, this? Well, now wait a minute. Schizophrenia is something that comes on in age 18 to 22, and it's not mm-hmm. something that comes on in middle age. So what is it you're seeing? Um, uh, the biggest sign, uh, just starting off, is that my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, has schizophrenia or mm-hmm. did have schizophrenia before he passed away. Right, and that's, not, um, and that's not typically passed on, but people with those kinds of major mental illnesses can have other major mental illnesses in family members. So okay. what do you say? Um, uh, her diary, uh, after, uh, a couple bouts of infidelity and just, uh, really, uh, risky behavior that we saw with my mother. Um, I was already out of the house by the time it started to appear. Um, but after all those, my father started to keep a little bit of a closer eye because he wanted to work on things. And he shared with me a, basically an online diary, I guess, that she had made, um, that she had left on the computer that they both share where she described um, what I would describe as visions or hallucinations about talking about uh, agents following her or people sending her music playlists that okay. would so change her mood. First first uh, thought would be drugs. So is she doing any drugs? I don't think anything um, I, I, as far as mood alternate like prescribed no, drugs. I mean, I'm not sure. No, I don't I mean, think so. My dad so, isn't aware of them. But you drinking heavily? Uh, um, maybe a glass of wine or two a night. Nothing so I, I would second, consider heavy drinking. Second question would be some sort of bipolar disorder, and so maybe she's getting a little manic. Is that possible? Yeah, uh, really weird decisions to uh, bring my younger siblings around these people that she's talking to or to uh, divulge a lot of personal information that I would think would be unsafe to tell someone you just met. All right. So again, it's hard for me to figure out what's going on, but she's in some sort of, has some sort of psychiatric illness. Got it. And as a result of that, what's happening? Um, Well, first, uh, the big thing is just with my dad, there's a back and forth. She wants a divorce one day. She wants to stay together the next. Why isn't he getting her to a psychiatrist? He's tried to, um, and they visited a marriage counselor and a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist has suggested that she continue treatment, but hasn't shown any signs of, from my understanding, any self-harm or harming others. So they, I don't know they if they can't, can't force her, her or yeah. what. She's getting towards gravely disabled, but go, but go ahead. So So what's the question? Uh, my question is just what 
especially being a, a man in this type of situation, sometimes there's some, some worries about whether separating will show some signs. His lawyer told him that um, if he separates or if he moves out of the house or instigates any type of um, separation, that he'll be seen as abandoning or, 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 or some side, especially with young kids. Right. Should he just move out or should he? No, I think she should, he should. No, no. You don't want to leave the kids alone with somebody who's ill, active with active illness, whose judgment is impaired. Mm-hmm. So by all means, stay put and ride it out and try to get her into some kind of care and document what you can that uh, could perhaps get her into involuntary hold if it's possible to do so or get her into some sort of voluntary care if necessary, if she's willing. But uh, by all means, stay. She's ill. Stay there. What you do in the long term, it's going to be up to him. But right now, she is scary. She's in, in scary condition. And it could be a medical problem for all we know. I mean, maybe she has a brain tumor. Who knows? But it needs. she needs compl- a careful evaluation. And it seems like none of that's happening. Okay? Um, and I, I, I'll, I'll be real short about this last part. She does mention in a lot of these diaries and things that she's actively trying to avoid, in her words, being put into a straitjacket. And, I mean, I have that uh, documented. So she's aware that there's something wrong. Have and you, she's have trying you, to avoid that type of detection. Yeah. Well, of so course. I don't know. Have you sat down and spoken to her and go, look, I'm really scared. I really worry. Well, before anything, before you need to go to a hospital, let's get something going here. I've tried. Um, right. it's, it, it, the conversation just shuts down. She just yeah, doesn't want to speak to me. Right. She's cut me off since March. This is, this is why we have homelessness. This is why people's mental illness spirals out of control because we can't help people in this country that need help. It is so ridiculous. We... We have this thing called the Lantern at Petra Short Act that uh, from overnight in 1967, whatever it was, that it was uh, put into place, and it was primarily in California, we went from a criteria of need for care as the the criteria for getting psychiatric care. Needed care, period. Got it. Went from that to harm to self or other and gravely, a vague term called gravely disabled. None of which, which leaves out a huge population of people, much like your mom, who are in desperate need of help, whom we can't get help to. We have to wait until something horrible happens. It is ridiculous. We have to change these laws. People are looking at it in California. And uh, David, thanks for the call. We got to keep going on here. Uh, let's see, Chris, go ahead. Hey, Drew, how's it going? Good. Um, so I'm 45. My mom has been an addict since before I was born, wow. and refuses. To, to get sober. Okay. Um, and w- what I've noticed, you know, just listening to you and Adam stuff, talk about the homeless, you know, I know you have ideas about what to do about the mental illness, but what about these drug addicts that are just completely unrepentant and do not want to get well? I know with my mom, we have never been able to get her to get well if she doesn't want to. Yeah. And I just don't see what we do with these. Like, do we warehouse them? What's your idea? Yeah. So you mean? Yeah, I know. Uh, I think this is a role for most of them are opiate addicts, and so medication-assisted treatment is definitely the way to go. Some of them are going to need, you know, high doses of things like methadone and Suboxone in order to be brought, you know, uh, to stabilize. Uh, Is your mom is is opiate the drug for her? Ironically, no. um, uh, It's pills. Originally prescription pills, not opiates, but like uh, tranquilizers, downers, kind of things like that was yeah. always her. So ben, we, it, I, benzodiazepines. It, it's funny you talk about the uh, the uh, conservatorship. Yeah, we tried to do this. We went to court, and the judge would not grant us one. And my mom is is and has been an attorney, and oh boy. she fought us. It's amazing how they can come to uh, yeah. lucidity yeah. When, when they need to, right. and we couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, benzodiazepine is the hidden epidemic. It's a serious problem. It, we're talking about the drugs like Valium, Ativan, Clonopin. Yes, yes, these things. And they change people. Not only do they change you from your, the chronic exposure, but you always develop some chronic low-grade withdrawal or maybe acute withdrawal. I mean, it just is a mess. There actually is a growing uh, sort of body of, of uh, survivors out there. Uh, forming uh, self-help groups and and uh, patient advocacy. Center. Look look up, I forget the name of the group, but there's like a benzodiazepine helpline for people. It's mostly for people that are super, super sensitive to the drugs that have all kinds of crazy yeah. symptoms. This is full-on addiction you're talking about here. And it's it's hard to get somebody off this. Unfortunately, it seems like most people are doing slow tapers off benzodiazepines. And I, I disagree with that. I treated 
a thousand benzodiazepine addicts, and we put them on cold turkey withdrawal protocols. In fact, I was thinking the other night that the American no, it's not the SAMHSA National Helpline. Uh, it's like a benzodiazepine uh, patient something. Um, no, no. Gary's throwing stuff up on the screen here that help, helps for you guys. But uh, let me just say that we, the American Society of Addiction Medicine actually published guidelines for how to do rapid detox on people on benzodiazepines and what to put them on for a week to get them through it. Now they're doing these withdrawal protocols that take like years to get people off benzodiazepines and they're miserable wow. the whole time. I just think it's a terrible way to go. So should you ever get to the point where she can be treated? Now, I don't know if insurances cover the treatment anymore. It takes a couple of weeks. Yeah. But uh, definitely put well, her that, in somewhere. You know, the, the conservatorship, is the only way we'd get there, and we cannot get it. We tried, yeah. and I, I don't, us. I can't the imagine. Standards are ridiculous. I know it's, you can't get conservatorship unless somebody is is dying and 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 ki- killing themselves constantly. Uh, yeah. And I understand you know, multiple falls, stroke, uh, teeth all busted out. You know, and this was someone who was top of her class at University of Texas Law School. Crazy. So just to watch her just <laughs> crumble as over forty five years, it's just horrible. But nothing could convince that judge. And I really hope you're successful at uh, fighting the ACLU and all these guys to to expand that definition. To, we have to. I mean, it's not like your mom's happier because of this. This, this is the misguidedness of the whole thing. It's like, you know, your mom's life is being wasted because no one can get in here. You develop, you know, one of the things that people develop with addiction and with psychotic illness is, is something called anisognosia which is the same team that strokes patients get. Like if you get a stroke on the right side of your brain, particularly in the parietal area, you you will get paralysis on the left side of your body and not be aware of it. Even if somebody should put, oh, yeah. takes, takes your hand and puts it in front of your face and drops it, you'll go, oh, yeah, whatever. You, it will not be your hand. And you'll be in denial about that. And that same mechanism is what's happening in psychotic illness and in addiction. So they can't see what's happening because of the part of the brain that allows them to have that insight is broken. And we are privileging that symptom in the law. If somebody had dementia and they couldn't see what was happening to them and they were wondering about, well, now we got to help that person. But if it's a psychiatric illness causing the anisognosia, oh, well, let them do what they want. It's, It's not what they want. This is not what they want. This is what the disease wants. Well, amazingly, I've seen this in multiple relatives that have actually gone through this conservatorship thing. My story is a lot crazier than just mom. But, mm-hmm. yeah, we've fought, taken them to court, and, and these people always magically get better yeah. on court day. I don't know how that works. Well, but it's, it's, the, but they do. it's the addiction. It's the it, disease of addiction. And, yeah. and getting conservatorships are almost – that's why I always say for it to affect the homeless thing, we have to expand the role of conservatorship, the access, the way they're metered out. Metered out. We have to change all that because right now it's impossible to get somebody to conservatorship. There's a pilot program in California where they're, they're allowing people that have been put on a hold like 15 times or something crazy like that. It might even be more than that. Uh, the possibility of a temporary conservatorship. It's like, oh, oh, thanks. That's going to help a lot. What about the ones that are three times on a hold or five times on a hold? It's just so ridiculous. Anyway, so yes, our well, laws you, are Drew. draconian. Good luck, Chris. I'm so sorry your mom's going through that, but crazy. Yeah. She's been 45 years with this. It's uh, it's, it's, a, it's unbelievable how their bodies keep going. Yeah, it's you know, pretty she's still doing it. She's, you know, over 70 now. So yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. hard to treat somebody over 60, 65. So I think you're about... Yeah. You're about yeah, there. Yeah, we're done with it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Chris. All right, man. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, thank thanks you. Thanks for the call. Bye. Uh, this is Jose. Hey, Drew. Hey, man. Um, real quick. Sorry. This just got me thinking what you were just talking about and all that addiction stuff. Mm-hmm. You keep up on Artie Lang's saga and, and all that stuff lately? I had some contact with it. He seems to be doing pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, he, he looks pretty good, at least. It looks like he lost some weight and stuff. Yeah, he collapsed the cartilage in his nose, and that's something that happens from cocaine. It, it, it literally, because cocaine is a vasoconstrictor, it, and, and the cartilage in your nose has a very poor blood supply, so if you constrict the blood vessels by pushing cocaine on it, it just dissolves because there's no blood getting right. to it, and then eventually it collapses, and that's what happened to him. Yeah. Um, I thought about my insomnia Um I've had insomnia for a, it feels like a long time since, since pretty much like I was an adult. I'm 40 now, since I can remember, you know, about 18 or so. And it, 
just gets worse and worse all the time. And I've, I've done quite a bit of different things for it, including medications and like, you know, the over, like melatonin, Benadryl, everything, Tylenol PM. And then, uh, even like some benzos, but I don't like that. And then recently I was prescribed something called trazodone Mm -hmm. and, uh, that has kind of been a little successful oh, good. in the beginning. Mm. Like, uh, this is maybe a month ago, and I was really surprised because nothing ever works. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of kind of knocking me out a little bit. Within about the first 40 minutes, I would sleep. I'd probably sleep a good four hours straight, wake up, which is really good for me, and sometimes fall back to sleep. But in the last about week... It just feels like it's not doing that well. But have you heard of this trazodone? Oh, sure. How much are you using? Uh-huh. What's the dose? Well, she started at 100 and said if it wasn't working to go to 150. And within two days, I just went ahead and went to 150. All right. I'm not telling you to do this, but you should check with your doctor because you can go all the way to 300. And, okay. And it is a good medicine. It doesn't usually wear out like that. It usually keeps working. Uh, though some of these medicines, the trazodone, can have what's called tach- tachyphylaxis. And I, I, for right now, would stick with that if that's working. Now, I, are you somebody that maybe just doesn't need much sleep? Um, yeah, I mean, like, I don't really – I can go with, like, four to six hours and be pretty good the next day. I can. And and uh, my wife, you know, she's one of those that can close her eyes and fall asleep which has always mystified me and I'm so jealous of it, but I would just like to be able to get a good, you know, at least six hours a night just because it's just my fantasy to be able to do that since I've never been able to. Well, I mean, it, I it's, un- it's unlikely when I do. All right. We feel better. It's unlikely you're going to change a lifelong pattern like that, but I will tell you that uh, I was hearing from some sleep specialists recently who said their main treatment for treating insomnia was sleep deprivation. They have you not sleep as many days as it takes until you sleep. Yeah. Right. And uh, have you ever done anything like that? Well, my brother, he kind of said that to me because he, he's just kind of like, this is just, uh, it's almost a fake thing. So he's like, you're going you're gonna to get tired if you don't sleep. And But I feel like, well, that's happened many times where I haven't slept all night. I, I watched the sun come up. And then the next night, I can't sleep very well. So, and that's a hard one to explain to people, but it's like, it's all a mind thing for me. It seems like, you know, I kind of play games with my mind. I tell my, if I wake up at two in the morning, I immediately tell myself, you won't be able to fall back to sleep, but Mm. it's just a nightmare in that way. And then I really don't fall back to sleep, you know, Hmm. but the trazodone is working pretty good. And that's interesting about being able to up it. And I'll, I will talk to her about that. Yeah, give you, it maybe another week and see. You can you can definitely go up. So uh, if that works, I mean, there it is. You got your solution. So then we'd be cool. Uh, thank you, Jose. Let's talk to uh, Ashley. Ashley. Hi. Hey. Here's How are me. you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I've been better. <laughs> What's going on? So I suffer from bipolar disorder mm-hmm. and it's very difficult for me because the people in my life don't really get it. Um, so I kind of don't, I just don't know what to do anymore. Are you fully treated? I am treating. I have been treating for 10 years. I've I've been med changing for ten years. I've been through several therapy programs. Um, therapy just doesn't work for me. I've been hospitalized. I have had ECT treatments. Um, we did the gene site testing, and now uh, we're applying for Spravato. Okay. So you're 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 being thoroughly treated, aggressively treated. That's all good. Um, yeah. And what is it that your peers or your whoever your loved ones, whoever's in your life, what, what's the difficulty they're having? They just don't. They don't understand. They don't want to understand. 
or talk about it. Like, I'll send them, you know, articles and things to different and to read for things. And, you know, I am suicidal and they just want to call the police and have the police take me to the ER, which the ER can't do anything for you. Um, and if I tell the, the crisis nurse that comes in, you know, well, I don't have an active plan, they're going to send me home. So Can't you teach your friends about the difference between a plan and an ideation? Yeah. And that you need them to just be with you when you're, when you're thinking about it? Yeah. Like, I'll tell them, like, I'm passively suicidal. Or, you know, I'm suicidal a lot. And when you, um, is it possible that when you get depressed, you get irritable and aggressive? I think my irritability is more of a hypomania. I, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm wondering if the, your friends are experiencing something you're not aware of, is I guess what I'm asking. They might be. Okay. Uh, they're just tired of it. They're tired. They're tired of it. Okay. They don't want it to, man. All right. That's understandable, right? I'm, I'm sure you're tired. Yeah. Of, I'm sure you're tired of it too. You're stuck. Yeah. You're stuck with it. They aren't, and they're you know they're holding back. Maybe yeah. maybe there's a way you could sort of uh, rotate friends a little bit. You know what I mean? That well, I do that. Yeah, I've tried that because um, there was one one person that I relied on the most. So I had been trying to reach out um, to other friends as well to see, you know, kind of how they react to it, okay. which is also not well. What's with your family? No. Where are they? Um, my mom died three to three, 2016. Okay. Um, so I live in my home that I, that I grew up in. Your dad? Just alone. And I, I do have about? family, but my sister, you know, she's got two kids. Yep. So she's always too busy if okay. I call her. Okay. What about your dad? I don't have a relationship with him. What about a support group? There aren't any. I live in Southern Illinois. There's no EA or anything, Motions Anonymous or any, you know, any, you could, did you look online? I have an online support group. Um, I have joined a couple of bipolar disorder support groups mm-hmm. on Facebook. Okay. And they drive me insane. Why? Like, these people are very bad. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> well, why don't you keep looking? Find some others. Yeah. Or, may, or maybe not just, maybe it's a more mixed bag, like just in a, a support group generally with not just bipolar patients. And see if you can kind of mix yeah. it up with other people that, you know, for either chronic psychiatric illness or other other kinds of emotional support necessary. Yeah, because. I think that would be good. Like, because it's unfair to your friends to I dump do. all that on them. It is. Yeah, because I, you know, I can work full time. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have never had to skip job, like quit jobs and this and that. I I don't do crazy things when I'm experiencing my hypomania episodes. I don't spend money like crazy, so I'm. I'm different. <laughs> but you're good. So listen, just think in terms of figuring out other ways to get support other than dumping on the friends. And then the friends will be more likely to be available. They won't burn out. They won't be depleted. You can have fun with them instead of you know leaning on them to take care of you when you have they're, – they're not caretakers so much. They, they want to share stuff with you. Then occasionally caretake as, as being part of being a good friend, but not all the time caretaking. So get some support group. And keep looking around. Usually there's support networks of one type or another in the flesh, pretty much all communities. I'm surprised there's not something there, actually. So keep looking around. Blinkist is unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, your web browser. They take the best key takeaways, the really need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down to just 15 minutes so you can read or listen or both. I love Blinkist. I love the efficiency. I love the ability to gain information efficiently. And Blinkist gives you unlimited access to read or listen to their massive library of condensed nonfiction books 
all the books you want and all for one low price. Some of the great nonfiction books available like Becoming by Michelle Obama or Start With Why by Simon Sinek or Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House, Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Drew. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. Spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That is Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Drew, to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25%, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Drew. I get asked a lot about CBD products these days, but it's difficult to answer meaningfully. The variety of claims being made, the clinical science just isn't there yet. Luckily, I've connected with an Oregon company that is all about high-quality ingredients and manufacturing standards. No hype. They were previously called Select CBD, but they just relaunched their brand as Social CBD. Social CBD focuses on broad-spectrum oil, something else you've probably heard about but might be confusing. So let's start with that. Hemp has over 60 non-psychoactive cannabinoids. CBD, just one of them. Broad-spectrum oil goes beyond CBD isolate and contains additional active compounds that work together to create what's known as the entourage effect. This can more effectively deliver the calming or relaxing effect people are looking for. Social CBD's broad-spectrum oils contain zero THC, so there's no high or reinforcing effects you might associate with hemp or cannabis. They're available in great-tasting tinctures such as vanilla mint, pomegranate tea, Meyer lemon. Just drop under your tongue for maximum effect. Social CBD products are available in a range of formulations, each of which is clearly described so you can make an informed decision without all the promises that sound too good to be true. To learn more, go to drdrew.com slash socialcbd. That is my website, drdrew.com slash social, S-O-C-I-A-L-C-B-D. For a limited time, save 20% at checkout with the code drdrew. That is D-R-D-R-E-W. As a physician, of course, there's one thing I know that is incurable. No one gets out alive. Aging, Botox, fillers, and surgeries may help some people, but they come with some risks. And, uh, you know, people are concerned about that, particularly if they're botched. So if you're looking for a natural and safe way to escape the jaws of aging, you need Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly reduces wrinkles, under eye bags, and even crow's feet. It works in minutes and can be used right from home. I used it myself. It looks great. Not only is it fast, Plexiderm is a natural product derived right from shale rock, making it safe and easy to use. Every day, people across the country have sworn by Plexiderm as the new game changer of the beauty industry. The buzz on Plexiderm has become so nationwide that even makeup artists and celebrities are raving about it. In fact, you have nothing to lose with Plexiderm. It's affordable, safe, easy to use, comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Eh, Maybe reconsider the surgeries and save money and time. Give Plexiderm a try. You will not be disappointed. Best part, no one really knows you're using it. Your age is safe with Plexiderm. Go to tryplexiderm.com. Use the code DREW for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. I said it. That's right. 50% off plus an extra $10 off. The offer is available also by calling 1-800-685-1292 and then mention that code DREW. Or just visit triplexiderm.com today. Use code DREW at checkout. That is triplexiderm.com. Code DREW. Go to triplexiderm.com. Use my code DREW for 50% off. Thanks for your call, Ashley. This is Will. Will. What's up, Dr. Drew? Hey, what's up? Uh, so you and uh, Adam, uh, not too long ago, were talking about um, Andrew Yang. Uh, but I wanted to touch upon, like, uh, Andrew Yang's kind of approach in terms of uh, how the 2016 election turned out, um, where all those swing states of uh, disaffected Trump voters, you know, obviously they, they were attracted to what Trump had to say. But one of the things that Andrew Yang talks about is the um, – automation of job loss and the self-destructive behavior that and that toll that it took on all those uh, kind of factory workers and those swing states and how that destructive behavior led to such things like the opioid crisis. Yes. And I, wa- I wanted to get your take on what you thought about that. Well, it's been pretty well documented that uh, in these cities that uh, had a flight of manufacturing jobs because of overseas competition, people became despondent and withdrawn and gave up and uh, even stopped looking for work. And a lot of those people, the, the men particularly, got strung out on opiates, a lot of them. Now I'm not saying that's what yeah, causes the- addiction. It isn't. Uh, but – you know, if people are prone to addiction and they're drinking a lot and 
fall down and screw their back up and then they get put on opiates. Well, now it's opiate addiction. So one of my, one of, so one of the last things I'll ask you is like, why don't you think, I mean, aside from Andrew Yang, I don't think anybody's really kind of bring up this direct correlation, especially as it pertains to, to men. Well, I, it's been, uh, it's all over the place wherever I read. I, I see lots. There's a, there's a book called, oh, shoot. Like catfish or something. It chronicles a town that one of the. It just really talks about the sociology of one of these towns. There's lots of literature about this out there, and uh, you know, it, it's the tide is turning. Uh, you know, employment is back up. They're dealing with the overprescribers and their kids, people that are on opiates, have access hopefully to medication assisted treatment that's being pushed now. So it's getting better. But the other thing the literature shows is that in those towns in which there was really significant. Uh, flight of uh, things like manufacturing jobs takes about a generation. Uh, I was hearing an economist say just yesterday, takes about a generation for those cities to recover. So it's not going to happen this generation. Uh, so it, it, it's a very sad little chapter that we people, you know, one of the unintended consequences of uh, world trade. So I have a couple of visitors in the studio we're going to talk to as well. Uh, Kristen and Tori, say hi, guys. Hello. You guys have qu- questions. I'm going to start with Tori because you said you had some questions you were going to call. I mean, Kristen, you said you were going to call in on. So my mom is 78 years old okay. and she's kind of got the same problem that Chris's mom had with the – Long-standing benzodiazepine. Long-standing. And mm-hmm. so they started prescribing it to her in the 60s. Wow. And they took her off at cold turkey when she was 75 saying oh. that – And so she's having a lot of issues. She off it now? Not unclear. But it, she would take a year or two to clear up. And that's the issue is so she's desperate for it. But where she Ugh. lives, the health care is not very good. So my question is, is should these um, prescribers be given better information about elderly people and how oh, long it takes very, to come off it? It's very complicated. Yes, that part, you, made my, you made the question easy. Yes. But the situation is complicated. Generally, when – Treating somebody for dependency or addiction after the age of 75 is very difficult and very different. Uh, sometimes people would just say, let's get her the lower dose possible and just leave it be. I mean, what are we really trying to accomplish here? Uh, increasingly, the pendulum has swung towards, because of the opiate thing, getting people off everything. And there is now um, a lot of supervision of benzodiazepine prescribing in the elderly because of falls. And so he, I'm sure her doctor was getting just hammered by the pharmacies and, and the insurance company who is paying for the benzodiazepine. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, or else she's going to fall and you're going to be your liability and we're going to hold you accountable. It's going to be, it's going to be elder abuse. It's going to be criminal. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so he or she was then obliged to do something. Right. Now, the hard part of treating anybody on benzodiazepines for a long time and then getting off is you know adju- finding something to stabilize them. Depending on which one she was on, I mean, which was a clonopin? Xanax was the latest one. Okay, Xanax is is a shorter post-acute withdrawal time. The clonopin can last a year or two. The Xanax lasts months typically, uh, and in that time, high dose Neurontin can be useful. Again, treachery and elder. It's tough to use an older patient, but high dose Neurontin can be very useful. Sometimes phenobarbital. It's not so gratifying to them, and it smooths a little bit of the edges off the withdrawal, and you kind of sprinkle little bits in sometimes just to get people through these mm-hmm. sort of peaks in their withdrawal. Um, anti-seizure medication can be helpful sometimes. Depakote, that kind of thing sometimes. Okay. Uh, ox, uh, I'm blocking the name of the drug. The drug. Oxcarbazepam can be useful too. Uh, I'm blanking on the name for some reason. Um, but, you know, somebody has to really know how to use them and there's got to be a lot of nursing supervision. Is she in a home? No, she's yeah. She lives at home by you, herself. You said just where she is, there's no access to. I, 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 it, something about what you said about where she's living made me think that she was supervised. No, it's no. it's a state that just is a little more backwards. Than Which one? Montana. Oh, well, Montana! <laughs> Come on now. At least they just they uh, uh, trileptol. Thank you, uh, Gary. Gary looked up uh, oxcarbazepam. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Montana's a state that puts a lot of uh, 
value in the individual, let's just say. Yes. Is that where you grew up? <laughs> no, not at all. No. no. How did she end up there? Um, I grew up in New York, Houston, and I was in L.A. for a while. My parents retired up there. So my dad just had his foot amputated last week because of diabetes. Yeah, well, good times. Yeah, because he, he's addicted to sugar. So, yeah, it's been a great, great month, yeah. Are you having to go up there all the time? And <laughs> um, My sister moved to be near them, so oh. she mostly helps out. Oh, she's going to get driven crazy. Yeah. You're going to have to get somebody for her. Exactly. Because you're in, what happens is, and I'm not kidding about this, if people are not sort of cooperating with their care, if they're difficult mm-hmm. uh, and certain conditions like dementias and things, you end up with another patient. The caretakers get sick trying to keep up with all that. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. So I'm hoping to go relieve her and you know, for little bits at a time, I can probably deal with it. Is it in Bozeman, your big sky? So we can go skiing during the day? Missoula. Oh, well, it's kind of near there, isn't it? Or is it the other side of the state? I think it's on the other side. Oh. It's a big state. Nah. And then, Tori, you have a crazy story. Yeah, pretty crazy, I would say. Yeah, I would say too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of what brought me to L.A. to kind of tell this story, I guess. you know. But, yeah, I was diagnosed at three with stage three neuroblastoma. And neuroblastoma, just so people know, the, the only thing worse I can think of is retinoblastoma. Uh, <laughs> and, and neuroblastoma, most children really don't survive that. At least it's difficult to survive it, especially at yeah. an advanced stage. Yeah, very, I guess. I mean, they told my parents I had about nine months mm. to live. Um, we actually came to UCLA um, in 87. My mom found a study over in, like, England, and they didn't have chemo then. And so she called them and just said, hey, my son's sick. He's got this. And where would you go? I can't come to you guys. So um, there was a doctor, Bob Seeger, Robert Seeger, at UCLA Medical Center, and she they said I would take him there if you can, and there was two, uh, well, one other place in Cincinnati doing treatment for it. Oh, everyone else didn't even do treatment. Nobody Just did treatment. They threw up their hands. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so they um, denied us at the other treatment center. So we had to come here, and we barely made the cutoff for and, for the study. And what, what was the issue? The advanced nature. Well, I had to been. There was a few things I had on a checklist. I'm not sure everything on it, but I know. I could only be doing chemo for so long from like one to nine months and I was about eight and a half weeks or like two weeks short of that before we even came to the treatment. So, And then because we did an autologous bone marrow transplant um, and I couldn't use a donor, there was some sort of weird stipulation with that. They did a bone marrow transplant using your, using your own cells? Using my own cells, And yeah. that was new back then? Yeah. Um, mine were taken from my pelvic bone, and they said about two liters were frozen. Now now it says five-year survival rate, 80%. So they must be doing similar treatment. They are. It's treatment. My treatment's still actually being used today for high-risk patients. Amazing. Um, uh, better drugs, though, they say. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, back then they just kind of went, Ugh. Well, I was actually allergic to the chemo drug I was taking, too. So at the same time, I was taking shots of Benadryl. You were a high-risk neuroblastoma, yes? Yeah. And the five-year survival for that is about 40%. So. Yeah, not too much. <laughs> not too good. But back then, it was all seat-of-the-pants treatment. Exactly. Yeah, my mom kind of – she said she knew Bob Seger, the singer. She grew up in Detroit. I was just thinking about that, <laughs> yep. And she was like, that's a sign. We got to take him out there. <laughs> so Crazy. took a road trip. I, um, My parents – my dad kept a journal. I found out that my mom – talked him into going and getting VHS tape. So I actually have VHS tape all turned to digital about the same journal time frame too. Wow. So Crazy. it's pretty cool they kept all that because I, I found out from my doctor that during the Northridge earthquake, lots of files hadn't been turned to digital and those ones burned up in a building. Oh, my gosh. And those were predating 89, 1989, I guess. I'm reading about the treatment just as you talk about it. And so, how long we? How much radiate? We have full brain radiation, or I have full body radiation. Full body, um, and it was. They said it was two times what an adult would have had oh as a four year old. So they say that's what's done in my growth. Doctors say if they knew more, would have gave me HGH back then. I would have probably grown taller. My dad's six foot tall. My brothers are all six foot. And you're how old now? I'm 36. And you're about how tall? I'm 4'10". Oh, that's a little different. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but you also said that as a result of this experience, you felt invincible. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, 
there was times. I mean, I've done just about anything except for heroin. But, I mean, and that was just because different groups of friends were into one thing or another, and I was mixing everything. Plus, if I was splitting something with somebody, I was wanting my fair share, even uh. though I was half their size. Oh, my God. So Did my, you have, do you, were you a drug addict, do you think? Or? Oh, yeah, probably, I would say. Are you in recovery now? No. You're just, you're just a drug abuser. I just abused, yeah, yeah. yeah. And eventually I just got tired of certain feelings that they gave me, and I was taking special K for a while, and I just was tired of sitting on the couch for a while. You know? do, you like think, you just, do you think I, – sometimes I think people go through – these, when they have a near-death experience, they go through traumatic reenactments where they start nearly dying over and over and over again. They just re- – they just it, they, I, in their mind, they're like, uh, I'm going to live because I was nearly died. I'm gonna, but they end up nearly killing themselves instead of really living. I definitely think that happened a lot to me probably because there was numerous times I would just lay in bed kind of just you know, geeked out of my head and I'm just like – that was the time I prayed. You know, that was the time I was like, Get me I did, back from the – did you do any, any, any extreme sports or anything too? Oh, yeah, well, I play uh, – I, well, I snowboard. Mm-hmm. Um, I skateboard. I wake, surf, wakeboard. Anything with a board. Anything extreme. Yeah, with pretty much. I went skydiving. I was just talking about I mean, that. It's, I it's really hard as somebody watching you, uh, dissuading you from that. It's like, oh, no, no, you, you nearly died. You go, go – this is great. Go. I'm so <laughs> glad you enjoy this. Yeah. So, I mean, I was just an adrenaline junkie, you yeah. know, and – but I also just – I think I had that addictive personality to where I would just do more. Like it's like hard for me to stop. You know, can't stop, won't stop. I just – I couldn't stop. Like if I had a taste, I just wanted more. And how, how long were you sick with the neuroblastoma? Um, about a year I want to say before um, I started doing chemo and then um, – but it could have been an onset because they didn't really know what to look for. I had mm. upset stomachs for about three, four nights. And I wasn't eating, like, actually nothing for, like, four days. I didn't have a bite to eat. Mm. Um, and it literally just felt like razors in my stomach. Mm. Like, I can still feel like when I would swallow. Um, and it's weird because I just – I have this long-term memory, but my short-term memory is here nor there. <laughs> but, I mean – I mean you have a vivid memory of when it was happening? Like, I remember certain things, like waking up in the middle of the night with these pains, you know, Um and you were held four? I was four. Oof. Well, three, actually, probably. But, and I have only a couple memories. You know, I wrote stories down about my earliest memories. Um, my brother made me eat a, like a night crawler when I was a kid. And then I got diagnosed maybe a month or so later. He told my mom that he thought that was what made he me caused sick. caused it. Oh, boy. And so that had to have been devastating for him. Oh. And then next thing you know, we're going, spending three months out in L.A., and we're not sure if Tori's coming back. Mm. <laughs> and and now are you doing being of service to other people who are struggling? Well, I mean, probably not as much as I would like to, or I should. Um, besides telling my story to other people, and I know the looks on people's face, you know, I can see the hope it gives people. So telling other people who have children who are sick, or people yeah, who have or cancer just, themselves, or or. Or just know people, have family members that might have been dealing with it. Could have just been breast cancer or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And you can just – they just feel like you can tell they're like humble because they've, they're going through something similar. It might not be the same, but you being a survivor and me being 32 years survivor, that's a really long time. So that gives a lot of people hope that they can live beyond the expectancy. You know. And, and when you tell the story, is there anything particular you've – emphasize um just about like being this miracle of modern science you know and um we were the second case study at ucla so um there was five and two of us survived and then um then i just tell them other stories from high school and college that like would shock and awe you only (laughs) only in like reverse Tell, tell me one well, I got shot up in a car by like six people surrounded me and my brother in a car. And, and, I, and shot you? I took a bullet on the hand. <laughs> Why were they shooting at you? Well, they came after my brother. Um, Why? Because of some heated phone conversation and he threatened my niece and nephew who were like – it was. it's a really long drawn out story but – Next Take thing your you know, time. Yeah, we want to hear it. We're trying to understand. Yeah. So either way, it was it was welcome week, freshman week at um, 
MSU, I just turned 21. My brother wanted to take me out for drinks. So him and two friends took me out. Of course, I drove. Good brothers, you know, should have drove me, you know, and get me drunk. But we decided to leave, and my brother's ex-girlfriend, the mother of his two kids, called me before we even let out. She knew we were going to go out. She said, tell Treg, that's my brother's name, tell Treg. What's wrong with your parents? Treg and Tori. And Ty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, she said she was moving out and all his stuff was going to be outside. Okay. So she said, have him call me or just go pick up his stuff because we're throwing it out like we're done. Okay. And so after drinking – I mentioned it to him. So he takes my phone, starts calling her, and words get said. I'm not even sure because I'm driving. And then she hangs up the phone, so he calls back, heated conversation, and somebody else picks up the phone. And it was the guy who was behind the whole shooting. And he said some stuff. Next thing you know, they want to fight. They're like, come here. No, I'm like, I'm not driving you anywhere. And they came to see us. They basically found – they knew the house we were going to to get the stuff. And they came – Get what stuff? Well, my brother's belongings. Oh, I see. Because he was getting So when out. you drove up, they surrounded you. Well, we drove up and there was nothing outside. Yeah. There was no clothes None or no stuff. boxes. My brother ran around the house. It was all locked up. And then all of a sudden we're leaving and a car drives by and my brother is like, that's Kim. That's Kim. Let's – so I stopped, and then there was two more cars full of people, like, pointing at our car. And he's like, get the fuck out of here. Like, pardon my language, but he's like, just drive, just drive. And I drove around the corner, and I ducked into a neighborhood, and I thought I was going to shortcut out to the main street, and it was a dead end. <laughs> and so then I pulled to the end, and I was looking out my back window. I didn't think they saw us, so I pull in front of a car, in front of a house. My lights are off. And they drove by like they thought they were passing, and one kind of creeped down and pulled into the drive before us. And then when he backed out, he backed right next to our car. Two car, two guys jumped out of his car, and then two more ran up on our side of the passenger side and then was banging their pistols at my brother and asking if it was him. They said, is you, Treg? Is you, Treg? And I was like... But the thing was is he had looked in the window and saw me and I dropped my nephew off and he knew it was me and he knew that was my brother so then he pulled away and shot in the door at my brother and as soon as that happened everybody started shooting and then my hand was on fire and I just started bleeding and I was like I'm hit I'm hit (laughs) and my brother just pulled me over how was he not hit that's what I don't understand I I think it was my Pontiac Bonneville at the time (laughs) had all this electrical in the door frame (laughs) (laughs) the panels Um, were these guys put in prison for this we only knew one person so like we were only able to get the one person and he was on the run for a while and then he ended up getting pinned for another murder there was, oh my God. There was <laughs> who are you hanging out with <laughs> this is just lansing michigan it's super it's ghetto. just lansing just super the way it ghetto. is it's yeah i mean it's like the little detroit is any of your family <laughs> still there most of them but they live in the suburbs my dad retired and moved up north and, and what are you doing out here now I came out to tell this story. <laughs> I figured I get enough attention from walking around, and I was like, "How could I get paid for this?" And people honestly think all my stories are astounding. And most of my friends who've encouraged me to come out here are just like, "Tori, you like have lived the craziest life. Like, I, you should have died ten times. Like, I don't understand." Tell what. me another time. <laughs> um, besides the overdoses, academy, me yeah, being those don't, those don't yeah. amuse me. Those, those are routine for me. Um. Yeah. Th- I mean, those are definitely routine. Um. I totaled three cars before I left the state of Michigan, so I was 23 when I left. Um. That Bonneville being one, another using drunk or or loaded. Drunk. Yeah. Yeah. What, there was one was drunk. One was. So what? What straightened you out, or are you? Um. I just said after that shooting. Um. I just realized like where my brother's road was going. Both my brothers, my other brother, went to prison when I was in seventh grade, and so both my brothers were like. Not the greatest. I mean, they were great for me. Are they okay now, or are they still... Um, One, unfortunately, shot killed himself about two years ago. The other one got out. He got married while he was in prison, but spent 16 years in prison, and then... But he's doing good. He's in San Antonio now. Um, Nobody lives, actually, in Lansing. Sounds like a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, yeah, and... But, yeah, all those cars, like, there was times... Like, they were just like, you shouldn't have walked out of that car. Like, friends have said, if you were a cat, like, you have, like, three lives left. So, 
I mean, so all the cars. Save them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's there's times I was snowboarding in the backcountry and dropping cliffs, like twenty foot cliff drops, and I would be buried in snow. But it was like veil, so it's, they call it champagne powder, and it just moves out of your way. So I duck under the snow, and I'm I'm buried, and then I popped out. Wow. And there's, I mean, there's numerous times I got stuck in tree wells, and I'm not sure how I got out of those two. Right. I'm small. They, they're big. Well, we appreciate you sharing the story. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and any cautionary words for people? You know, I, I mean, just be careful, you know, but don't like. Don't be like Tori. But don't be scared to try anything. Like, oh, would you? Maybe you need a little more fear <laughs> about trying. But anything. yeah, I mean, definitely, I can. You got to learn from people's mistakes, and that's why you're here to tell the story. But yeah, uh, and Krista, anything else on your front? No, thank you for having us on. Yeah, it's our pleasure. <laughs> anything else you want to tell anybody? Anything you guys are representing or causes or? You know, just um, yeah. That's I don't really have any meme except for you know children's cancer I yeah. mean, there's a lot of foundations lots of small ones out yeah. there and i mean i talk to doctors lots of times that they say pediatric oncology is like one of the hardest things to deal with because i can't do it I, I i don't understand how they do it yeah i you, don't understand it uh I, I can't yeah and i can't say enough about the doctors the team of doctors i had mm-hmm. you know and i'm just very fortunate you know to have you know family that found them you know and, yeah for sure so. Well, Gary, we're going to wrap stuff up. I wonder if you have any questions before. God, I mean, <laughs> I, I, don't, I wouldn't know where to start. That, I mean, thank you guys for coming on. Yeah, it was very fun. I, I was, I don't know, I drifted out for a moment, and then I, I got caught with, like, a phrase I was not expecting at all. So, yeah, sorry I jumped in there. All right. Well, guys, thank you very much, and thank, thank you all for the calls and the stories, and uh, hopefully we helped a little bit tonight, and uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.com.